In the final chapter of John's gospel, a fellow by the name of Cleopas is walking with a friend. We, we don't know his friend's name. It's Easter, the first Easter. They're walking from Jerusalem to their home, which is in a village not far from Jerusalem by the name of Emmaus. Jesus has been crucified the Friday just before this day, just before this Sunday. And here they are on Sunday, walking home in their confusion. Jesus, alive from the dead, joins them on their journey, but they don't recognize him. He asks them what they're talking about. They're surprised. Could it, could it be that anyone leaving Jerusalem didn't know about the crucifixion of Jesus? And then in Luke chapter 24, verse 21, they express their deep sorrow. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And then Jesus, in response, expresses his deep disappointment. Verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, here are two well-informed individuals. They knew the scriptures, but they did not understand them. They had witnessed the works and the words of Jesus, but they did not know what his works and his words meant. So they neither understood the scriptures nor recognized Jesus. And then, once Jesus had taught them what he held them responsible to already have known, oh foolish ones, slow of heart, he holds them responsible for their ignorance. And once he teaches them what he believes they should have already known, it says in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. So Cleopas and his friend could not see Jesus in the flesh until they could see Jesus in the Old Testament. Their eyes were not open to recognize the resurrected, real Jesus until their minds were opened to recognize Jesus in the Old Testament. The same is true for us today. Until we see how the Old Testament reveals Jesus, our interpretation of Jesus in the New Testament will be out of context and wrong. So last week, we looked at Genesis 1, and we saw how creation reveals Jesus. This week, we're looking at Genesis 2, and we'll see how Adam, the first human, opens our eyes to Jesus. Now, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. 
so much to see here, but for the sake of time, my constant enemy, two characteristics of Jesus, two characteristics, I'm sorry, of Adam in the beginning of Genesis. First, look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Out of all of God's creatures, out of all that God created, there is something unique about human beings, something special about humans. In Genesis chapter 1, humans are the high point of creation. All of creation is rolling along at a very steady rhythm until you get to the creation of man and woman. And then suddenly God stops the rhythm and he makes humans. It's the crescendo, the climax of Genesis chapter 1. More words dedicated to the day in which humans are created than all of the other days. In Genesis 2, it's not so much that humans are the high point, it's that humans are the centerpiece of God's creative work. Everything else in Genesis 1 was created with the voice of God, but in Genesis 2, God creates humans with his hands. In Genesis 1, God merely says, let there be light, and there is light. But when he gets to humans, he stops, does something he has not done up to this point. He announces what he's about to say. He announces that he's going to create humans, and then creates humans. In Genesis 2, it is his hands that form us, and it is his very breath that gives humans life. And the, the nearness of the creator to the human is, is so remarkable. It's not just his breath in general. It is breathing his breath into our nostrils. In Genesis 1, we see the nearness of human to the creator. In verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Adam was created in a unique way. And he was, he was created different than all of the other creatures in the image of God. That's the first characteristic. Adam was created in a unique way. He was created in God's image. The second, look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land... And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Here we see that creation was made good, but incomplete. Good, but not perfect. Not if you mean by perfect, final. Good, but there was yet goodness to come. And the goodness to come required humans to draw out of the creation the latent potential that God had placed within creation. God had not yet put the man there. Here we see that not only is Adam made in a unique way, he's made with a unique purpose. 
That's the second characteristic. He has a unique purpose. God breathed his own breath into Adam, made Adam in his own image. Why? Why did God make humans unique? What was the reason for that? It was so that Adam could rule the world on behalf of God. God's intent all along was to rule creation through humans. This is why God made humans in his own image. So that humans could do what he had been doing up until that point. So that they could take his creative baton and carry on his creative work of forming and fashioning and filling and organizing. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Why? And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth. I, I mentioned last week that creation is a house and it's a three-story house. It's the heavens, the land, and the water under the earth, sea level below, unless you live in New Orleans, sea level is below the, the level of land that we live on. Here we're seeing that God made humans to have dominion over the whole house, all three stories, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, so in other words, this is why. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And notice very carefully, verse 28, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here is these two characteristics put together. God made Adam unique in order to fulfill a unique purpose. God made Adam unique in that he gave Adam and Eve, he gave humans his own image, and he did this so that, so that humans could fulfill their unique purpose, which is to rule creation as God would. In other words, in good ways, in benevolent ways, in the ways that it was meant to be stewarded. Be fruitful in order to fill up the earth. Why? So that God's image is all over this earth. So that all over this earth are vice regents, co-creators, who have taken the baton from God and are doing with this earth what a master gardener does with a garden. What a master builder does with the raw materials of wood and stone and iron. What a... What a marvelous musician can do with sound waves. What, a, what, a, what an incredible painter can do with pigments. Fill up this earth with my image. And while you fill it up, you don't just fill it up, you subdue it. You bring the chaos into order like God did prior to making humans. Now in the next chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve don't do that. They sin. Adam and Eve should have had dominion over the serpent. But instead, they yield to the serpent. And they break their covenant partnership with God. They disobey their creator. And with this, their unique identity is shattered. 
and their unique purpose is broken. Not removed. The image of God is not removed. And the purpose of humans is not removed. But it's thwarted. It's shattered. It's twisted. It's distorted. As a result, the work of men and women turns into labor. The work of subduing the earth in order to have good and wise dominion becomes wearisome. It becomes toil. And not only does creation resist our leadership, not only does the soil and the air and the water thwart our best intentions, but our use of power over nature exploits it and depletes it. And then there's the work of filling the earth with the image of God. With the entrance of sin into the world, birth becomes an occasion for labor. Isn't it interesting that the English word is a double entendre both for men and women. Labor for a man's work and labor for a woman's work. The same word play is in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 3. So that suddenly the work of men and women becomes toilsome. In Ecclesiastes it becomes vain. The entrance of sin into the world, not only though, does labor for a woman become an occasion for sorrow, not only is childbearing physically dangerous, but the children Adam and Eve bore, what's the first thing they do? Murder. The children of Adam and Eve, instead of filling the earth with the life-giving image of God, fill the earth with death. So what we see is that Genesis 3 is a boundary. When Adam and Eve sin, they build a boundary. They build a wall, a boundary line between two conditions. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have true humanity. Humans as they were made to be, doing what they were made to do. Humans truly expressing the image of God as God's covenant partner. Then you have the boundary line of Genesis 3. You have the boundary erected by sin. And now what do we get? Humanity as it is. Humans enslaved to sin. Human nature turned here and there by mixed motives. The humanity of domination. And control the humanity of objectification and shame. And the great drama of Scripture revolves around the question when will humans be the rulers God intended them to be? How will humans become what we were made to be so that the creation can become what it was made to be? How will humans become true image bearers? Filling the earth with life and wise dominion so that all of the potentials of creation can be wisely and graciously and generously realized. Now let's turn to the New Testament. Find in your Bibles Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 14. Romans 5 verse 14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And this is similar to the words that Jacob read to us from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 to 49, where Jesus is called the last Adam. In Greek, the original language of John's gospel. I'm sorry, the original language of what Paul was writing here in 1 Corinthians, ho eschatos haram. You know what this means? It means so much more. It doesn't mean the last Adam as in there will be no more. It means the ultimate Adam, the true Adam, the goal of Adam, the true human. The eschatological human, the human that all humans will be. When Christ returns, breaking in here and now, this is just scratching the tip of an enormous iceberg that fills the Bible. And for the sake of time, let me just bottom line it. The Christian faith stands or falls on the truth that Jesus is a human as humans were meant to be. Hoeskatos Adam. The true human, the ultimate human, the goal of humanity. Jesus, the Christian faith, stands or falls on this. That Jesus is a human as humans were meant to be. In John's gospel, Jesus is standing before the crowd that is demanding his crucifixion. And Pilate says, behold, the man, the Adam. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Well, when was the last time in the Bible we saw something in the image of God? Man and woman, Adam and Eve in creation. Time and again in the Gospels, we see Jesus subduing creation, having dominion in a wise and life-giving way. Over creation. And do you remember when Doris was reading Genesis chapter 2? Do you remember how God created a wife for Adam? He put Adam to sleep. He wounded his side. And out of his side, he created his wife. And can you see Jesus on the cross? And from the wound in his side, God creating the church. The bride of Christ. From the open side of the new Adam, God repeats the creative mystery of the open side of the first Adam. From the lance thrust side of Christ, a new Eve is created. And now Jesus is filling the earth with his children, children of life. When we look at Jesus, we see the unclouded vision of what a true human really is. So Jesus is the true human. And here's an enormous implication of all of that. He can lead us to become truly human. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Notice 
starting in verse 3. Matthew's gospel, the first gospel of the New Testament. Starting in verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him, came up to Jesus, testing him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they said to him, why then Did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here we see that when Jesus is asked about divorce... He doesn't analyze its sociological dimensions. He goes back to the beginning. He quotes a verse from Genesis 1 and he quotes another verse from Genesis 2. Jesus is saying that we can see beyond the boundary. We can pierce the boundary. We can know the original purpose of humans before sin made our hearts broken and hard. And this, the original purpose and nature of humans, get this, is still normative. It still has claim on us. It determines right from wrong. Not what comes natural to us now. What comes natural to you now, what you're born inclined to do, is not normative. A boundary was erected when Adam and Eve sinned. All sorts of desires fill our heart. How can we know if they're good or bad? Because of the way they feel? No. Because of what society says about them? No. Fallen humanity, broken humanity, is not normative. It is a deviation. One of the most important discussions occurring in our society today has to do with human sexuality. I read the newspaper every day. I can't remember the last day that somewhere in the New York Times, in USA Today, the weekend edition of um, Daily News Record, yesterday, big article about homosexuality. One, this, is, this is a very important issue. It is very important what we're reading in our interactions with our friends on the, about the issue of sexuality. And as we have this discussion and as we process our experiences and the experiences of our friends, we cannot stop at the boundary We cannot stop with human nature as it is now. We cannot concede that human nature as it presently is, is all there is to human nature. We cannot really understand what is natural unless we know the current state of human nature is a deviation from the original state. 
of human nature. And when it comes to the debates about homosexual behavior, few questions are more central to our confusion than the distinction between humans as they were made to be and humans as we all are. Defenders of same-sex marriage pile up the evidence that homosexual practice has been tolerated throughout history and even celebrated. If we cannot get past the boundary to the fall, that is all we have to go on. But when Jesus was asked about divorce, he made the point that we cannot really grasp our current condition unless we go past the boundary of the fall and see humans as they were made to be. Now, if we cannot go past the boundary, if our present condition is the way we were meant to be, then when a Christian advocates the view from the Bible that homosexual behaviors are sinful, then that doesn't sound like salvation. That sounds like genocide of the human species. But if our present condition is a deviation from our original purpose, then whether it's homosexual behavior or two people living together outside of marriage and fornicating, whatever the issue, it is out of line with our original purpose and it is a brokenness from which we must seek redemption. This is why we get passages like Ephesians 4.13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. How do we know what true manhood is? True humanity is? Our knowledge of Jesus. How do we know who Jesus really is? Understanding how he's prefigured in the Old Testament. Listen to this verse. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Not so that we can become unhuman, but remember Jesus is as a human as humans should be. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. And we all... With unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you see that in all of these passages, there is a steadfast insistence that human nature as it is, is broken and must be transformed by being restored into its original image and purpose. You see, all of these passages define the need for humans as as to become like Jesus because Jesus is a human as humans were meant to be. So to become like Jesus is to become truly human. The goal of Christianity is not to become less human. The problem with fornication with cohabitation, with homosexual behaviors, with adultery, with any of these sins or any other category of sins. The problem is that it is dehumanizing. It is something humans were not made for. They could be born with it. They could be born with desires for it. 
It could feel absolutely natural, but what feels natural to us now is a result of the fall. But as Christians, we can pierce the veil of the fall. The goal of Christianity when it comes to your impulses that are out of that are out of rhythm with the grain of the universe, the goal is not to become less human, but to become maximally human. In Christ, we are called and empowered to be truly human. This is what was going on in the passage I read from John's gospel when we see Jesus doing the same thing to his followers that Jesus the creator did in Genesis 2, which was what? Anybody pick it up? Breathing on them. In Genesis 2, the imago Dei, the image of God, is given to humans by the breath of God. So when the God himself becomes human and he breathes on his followers, what is he saying? I am giving you the spirit of God to restore you to what you were made to be. This is what Jacob read to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. If you will give your life to Christ, he will give you a new identity, your original identity. And he will give you fresh moral capacity to do what you were called to do. If you give your life to Christ, he will breathe into your nostrils in an intimate act. What he did in the beginning He will breathe into you that which gives you your true identity and the moral muscle you need to say no to all of the dehumanizing natural impulses that you possess. God has no interest in plan B for humans. Jesus came so that we might be human as God intended for us to be. Being human is a good thing. We've got these terrible sayings, to err is human. The problem with that is our our sayings get all muddled. Yes, to err is human if you mean by that the second broken nature of humanity. But please, dear Christian brother and sister, do not let yourself be defined by your dehumanized nature. Pierce the veil. Go through the boundary and and be defined by what you were made to be. Being human in that sense is the hope of the world. The Bible says that all of creation is groaning for those kinds of humans. Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning that that the that humans would be made, remade, transformed into what they were made to be all along. And God's plan all along was for creation to achieve its glory through the wise and benevolent rulership of kings and queens. 
in the image of God. Being human is not something to escape. It is not something to grow out of. St. Irenaeus, the second century bishop of Lyon, understood this well when he famously said, the glory of God is the human fully alive. Let's pray.